Thank you, Carol. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Esther, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, we're going to continue here with our series through the book of Esther. Uh, just do a couple of quick uh, summaries, what we've looked over in the last couple of weeks. Uh, is first that Jesus is a greater king than King Xerxes, who, that's why I'm going to be using his Greek name, because his Persian name is barely pronounceable. Uh, but Xerxes is a, a really horrible individual. He's not a fun guy to be around. He's not a nice man by any stretch of the uh, imagination. In addition to that, last week we looked at the fact that Jesus has a greater way. There was a way in which the kingdom of Persia was operating, and Jesus is greater than that way. His idea of salvation is greater. His understanding of the way the world works is greater. Everything about him is greater. So Jesus is a greater king, and Jesus has a greater way. So starting here in uh, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And so this uh, does beg a little bit of a remembrance of what we talked about last week. Uh, but the question I have for you, have you ever made a bad decision out of anger or frustration. I mean, if you haven't, God bless you. You're a saint. You're going straight to heaven. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. But for the rest of us mere mortals, uh, sometimes I make very bad decisions when I am angry or frustrated. Uh, when I get anger, angry, uh, I find it difficult to keep my temper in check. And when I've got a hot head, I make some really bad decisions that I usually have to repent about later, that I have to go up and, and tell people, uh, you know, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that, that was a poor decision, please forgive me, let's move on. Most of the time, they forgive me and I'm good. Sometimes I have to harbor a grudge forever. No, I'm kidding, let's move on. Um, Xerxes, in the last chapter, loses his temper, uh, divorces his wife, and now it's seeming like he regrets it. Now, I say seemingly... Uh, because we read that it, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 starts with the words, after these things, which if you like me, you want to know, well, what are these things, right? right? Anyone, anyone see that? After these things. Well, uh, this actually, this period of time is about four years. So if you remember, he threw this massive party. It lasted for 180 days. It was a six-month party. It was a real kind of kegger. It was really great. He was doing it to build support for his military invasion of Greece. Now, if you've seen the movie 300, which I can't recommend, you know how that invasion turned out for him. He lost. He lost big time against the uh, seven Greek city-states. Um, in fact, there is a famous line that uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian, uh, I don't have it here, but I found this line in my research. Uh, he attributed to the Greek soldiers... Uh, when Xerxes brought his army of one to three million people down the corridor to Greece, he told the Grecians that they had to lay down their weapons, and uh, the Greek response was, if you want our weapons, come and take them. That's where that comes from. It's from Greece. Now, 
in case you're wondering, the current motto of the Greek army is, if you want our weapons, come and take them. I'm not even joking, some 3,000 years after this event, the Greeks still remember that they beat the Persians. Now, eventually what will happen in the course of history is the Persian Empire will actually dissipate, and under Alexander, uh, Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire will take its place, and then after the Greek Empire falls, the Romans come in. So if you remember anything about your ancient history, you'll know that this was sort of the beginning of the end for the Persian Empire. Uh, Xerxes wanted to make his empire bigger and greater than his dad's Darius uh, I, his empire, uh, when he tried to, he failed miserably. And so that's all at the back of the, the phrase, after these things. Normally, when you get knocked on your butt by life, there's a moment of reflection of how did I get to this point? Do, do you agree with that? Do you, do you, have you ever been to that moment where you're sort of just sitting down, you're looking around, you're like, how did I get here? That's what Xerxes is going through right now. He has, he threw this big party. He thought he was going to conquer the world. Everyone treats him like a god. He gets a huge ego. He marches into Greece with this three million strong army. He gets thoroughly routed by the, the combined Grecian forces. He goes back to his citadel in Susa, his palace, his summer residence. He's sitting there and he goes, how did I get here? After these things, when his anger had abated, he remembered Vashti and that she, what she had done and what he had decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. I can't help but laugh. Here's a little bit of advice. Never take advice from young men. <laughs> they think they know everything. They don't. Here, the definition of young man that's used in this particular thing uh, would be somewhere in the range of 14 to 21 years old. Now, think about the 14 to 21 year old men that you know. We won't even call them men, we'll call them boys. Think about the 14 to 21 year old boys that you know. Will you go to them for life advice? No, because they don't know anything. At 14 to 21 years old, I knew how a computer operated, that was about it. You ask me anything about life, I would not be able to give you a coherent answer. I wouldn't be able to tell you about love. I wouldn't be able to tell you about marriage. I wouldn't be able to tell you about a steady job or employment because uh, at 14, I was still in school, learning. So one of the lessons that you're going to learn from the book of Esther is don't take advice from young men. They don't know anything. Don't take advice from middle-aged men. They barely know anything, but that's another issue. Moving on. I'm going to get into so much trouble in the sermon series, but it's going to be worth it. I'll have to fire myself. And let the king appoint officers. This is the young men talking to the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom and gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, or the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, we learned about him last week, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. <laughs> and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. There is a lot to unpack in just these couple of verses. So we'll start here. We saw last week that when a man values a woman based solely on her physical appearance, that will lead to abuse. If that is the sole 
defining factor of a relationship going either way is how pretty your spouse looks, then you're not going to have a strong relationship. Do you, do you agree with that? If you don't agree with that, I'll argue with you after church how I'm right and you're wrong. But relationships are more than just he's got a pretty face or she's got a pretty face. It has to be, relationships have to be, if you're a Christian, built around Christ at the center. Your relationship needs to have Christ at the center. And as individuals, you need to come together and become one flesh around Christ. That's how relationships are supposed to work for those who are Christians. Now, in any of these passages of Scripture, does it sound like Xerxes is going to build a relationship with Esther on the, the, the right way? Let's get to know her first. Let's see what she's like. Let's see what her personality is like. It literally says that he's going to gather all the beautiful young virgins in the, uh, in the entire kingdom, which is the 127 provinces that he rules. Uh, it's about 3 million square miles, about roughly the size of the United States of America. He's going to gather every single young virgin uh, that looks good, and he's going to get them into his citadel, into his harem, and then he's going to give them cosmetics. He's going to give them makeup. Literally says that. Look, I'm not gonna let their cosmetics be given to them. That's what it means. You need a little bit of rouge, maybe some blush, some eyeliner. There is a concept of beauty that is found in Scripture and then there is a concept of beauty that the world has. And that concept of beauty that the world has shifts uh, oftentimes through cultures. Uh, but something in the Persian Empire is very similar to the culture that we have today is that their definition of beautiful would be someone who is thin, someone who is tall, someone who is extremely good looking, there's no flaws in their skin. And then to make them even more beautiful, they would use cosmetics to make them beautiful. Does that sound like anything that we deal with in today's society? The concept of beauty that God defines in Scripture is actually of a person's soul. What is inside? Now, you hear this all the time, especially by, by people who are trying to flirt. Well, it's not on the outside. It's the inside that matters. It's true. It does. What's inside of you is more important than what's outside. And you know that because Jesus said so. And Jesus doesn't lie. Ego. What's on the inside is better or more important than what's on the outside. In fact, there was a, a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees that Jesus was talking to, and he called them whitewashed tombs. Uh, in Israel at the time, there was, uh, in the time of Jesus, there was a custom and a habit of when you got a tomb, taking white paint and painting over the gray rock to make your tomb more beautiful. The sun would hit it, it would shine, it would look glorious, but inside that tomb there would be a rotting and dead corpse. And Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs because they cared more about the exterior than they cared about the inward condition of their own hearts. Xerxes only cares about the exterior. He doesn't care who he marries as long as they're hot. Right? That's what Xerxes is doing. If you don't believe me, read scripture right there. And let the young, <laughs> let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Uh, this pleased the king and he did so. Uh, unfortunately, the definition here of the young woman who pleases the king is a sexual act. This is not just, hey, she looks good, but also, yeah. Now, here's the reason that I bring this up. A lot of the times when we're talking about Esther as an individual, 
We make her out to be this fantastic heroine who is head and shoulders above everyone else, who is the greatest person since life. Like, she's Esther, the great queen. Look what she did for her people. I need to show you that Esther is not only thoroughly human, she's also thoroughly sinful. Esther is a virgin at this point. She is brought into the king's presence, and in order to advance, she needed to sexually please the king. She, according to the Hebrew scriptures, she defiled herself in order to get ahead. That's not a role model. But see, here's the problem. There's not that many female role models in scripture. I'm not sure if you know this, but there's only two books of the Bible that are named after female characters, Esther and Ruth. That's it. Of all the authors of Scripture, there is no definitive proof that there is a female author of Scripture. Even the book of Esther, uh, Hebrew tradition tells us it was written by Mordecai, not by Esther herself. And so the problem is, when you have so little choices for role models in the, in the Bible, you sort of try and read into Scripture and you try and what we call eisegesis, which is to insert things into the narrative that aren't there. Esther is not a holy person. There's not a single time in this book that she prays to God. There's not a single time where she follows God's commandments found in the Torah or the Old Testament. There's not a single time in this book that she follows uh, the dietary laws in the Old Testament. We'll get to that in a little bit. But what I really want you to understand is Esther right now is not a role model. She is a warning of what can happen when you stray away from the commands of God. Okay, moving on. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, if you think that I picked on Esther, hold on to your hat, so I'm going to pick on Mordecai for a little bit. Why is Mordecai in Susa? Darius released the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Why is Mordecai in Susa? Well, when Darius released the Jews to go back to rebuild Jerusalem. Some people had faith that God was going to be with them and they'd be able to do it. Some people did not have faith and were comfortable where they were, so they stayed there. Mordecai is not a hero in this story either. There are no heroes in this story. Normally I'd be able to say, well, God is the ultimate hero. He's not in this book. The word God, the holy name of God found in Scripture, is not found in the book of Esther anywhere. The holy name of God is not found anywhere. Mordecai isn't a hero. Esther's not a hero. Xerxes, definitely not a hero. So why does this book matter? This book matters because it shows the providence of God as he's painting a picture. We'll get to that. Now, Mordecai isn't even a Hebrew name. I'm not sure. Now you hear the word Mordecai, you think, oh yeah, that's a Jewish name. That's because Jews love the Feast of Purim, which comes from the book of Esther, so they started naming their kitties that. It's actually a derivative of uh, the name Marduk, which is a god from Babylon, and not a particularly nice god. Not that a lot of them were particularly nice gods. Most of them were terrible individuals. However, Marduk was a particularly nasty piece of work. Mordecai isn't even his Hebrew name. It's his Persian or Babylonian name. We don't know what his Hebrew name is. 
See, when we were going through the book of Daniel, uh, we talked a lot about how these guys had alternate names. And even though they had alternate names found in scripture, they retained their Jewish identity. And so Daniel had the, uh, the uh, Babylonian name given to him of Belteshah. And he rejected that and was known by Daniel, which was his Hebrew name. Mordecai isn't like that. Not only did Mordecai refuse to go back to Jerusalem with the faithful people, so he stays in Susa where it's comfortable, he rejects his Hebrew name and goes only by his Greek name. Uh, We will read a little bit further on that it says that he counseled Esther, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Don't give that away. Keep that secret. What you can uh, tease out from these texts is that Mordecai is either ashamed or scared of the fact that he's Jewish. He wants to be, quote-unquote, normal like everyone else in Persia. And so he hides. He doesn't pray to God. He doesn't read scripture. He doesn't follow the dietary laws. He rejects his Hebrew name and takes his Persian name instead. He tells Esther, avoid uh, calling yourself out. Avoid letting people know that you're Jewish. In life, sometimes it is going to be easier for you to pretend you're not a Christian and go along with the crowd than it is to declare yourself a Christian and stand for Christ. Mordecai made a bad decision. Have I convinced you? Bad person? Bad people? Yes? Moving on. Great. Uh, verse 6. So uh, it, it sort of continued that he was the uh, son of Be- uh, Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jehoanan, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Uh, so he had been brought into uh, captivity when Jerusalem had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar that we read about in the book of Daniel. Verse 7. He was bringing up Hadasha, that is Esther. She has two names. We'll get to that. The daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. Likely, uh, again, if you remember from the book of Daniel, what they did is that they brought all of the good-looking people into captivity. Do you remember that? So Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were good-looking people. You remember that? Good. Whatever. It's not like I preached for it for five weeks. Whatever. Um, They were taken into captivity. Those who were not good-looking were killed. So do you want to know what happened to Esther's father and mother? The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. That's why she was taken into captivity. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. The name Esther appears in this book 55 times. Esther is her Persian name, not her Hebrew name. Her Hebrew name is the one that I had just read for you. Uh, Hadasha. So, about Esther. She's an orphan. She's likely in her teens or at the very latest early 20s. Uh, She could be anywhere from 14 years old through to about 20 years old. We don't know for a fact how old she was in this narrative. Hadasha is her Hebrew name, and it means myrtle, which is symbolic for peace and joy. Esther is her Persian name, and it's a derivative of the goddess of love, Ishtar. Again, the derivative of a god and not a nice one. And so Esther goes by this name. She's hiding her identity as a Jew. She's hiding her identity as a Hebrew 
so that she doesn't have to take a stand for the things that Hebrews are supposed to take a stand for. So the question really is then, who is she? Is she this Hebrew or is she this uh, Persian? Well, maybe she's both. Have you ever, uh, you've heard the expression, that person has two faces? Or maybe that person wears two hats? I think that's very much Esther. She's wearing two hats at this point. She's wearing the hat of a Hebrew in her name, Hadasha. She's wearing the hat of a Persian with her name, Esther. A Persian name and a biblical name, uh, I don't know. It's like she lives in the world, but she wants to try and retain maybe some of her identity as a Hebrew in secret. Maybe she thinks to herself, if I just keep it secret, if I just keep it over here, uh, and I hold on to it really tightly, I'm not going to let it go. Too many of us have our Christianity like that. We think of our Christianity like that. We say, yeah, when I'm at work, I don't need to uh, listen to Christian music. I can swear with everyone else. I can joke around with the boys like everyone else. I can act like everyone in the world over here because it doesn't matter because over here I'm holding on to my Christian faith real tight. No one can see it, but I've still got Jesus said, don't... Well, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. The city on the hill cannot be hidden. You don't light a candle and put it under a bushel or a basket, your choice. Esther is, is definitively trying to hide who she is. She belongs to God, but she doesn't show it publicly. She says she belongs to God, but she disobeys the dietary laws and scriptures. She says she belongs to God, but she lives far away from him. Right now, the Jews believe that God's presence dwells within the temple in Jerusalem, but she doesn't go back to Jerusalem when she's given the option. She stays in Susa, the capital. Do you understand that she's conflicted? That she's living these two lives? That she's got her public face and her faith face? Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hagar, who is the eunuch, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hagar, who had charge of the women. For a couple of verses here, it doesn't seem like Esther has much of a choice. She is orphaned, put into the care of Mordecai. A decree comes down that says all the beautiful women have to, have to do this. We've already seen what happens when you disobey King Xerxes. People get beheaded or they get exiled. So she has to obey fear of death. It doesn't seem like she has much of a choice. Verse 9, going back to the king here, and the women, young women pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and the seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her <coughs> and the young women to the best palace in the harem. And she's sort of a late entry to the... I don't even want to know what this sort of competition should be called, but she's a late entry to it. She comes in and she's so stunning in beauty that she, the king advances her uh, into the top seven choices. They're given the best food um, that they can possibly eat. They're given the best cosmetics that money can buy. 
uh, and they're moved into a separate palace. Now, you know you're rich not only when you have a palace and you have three other palaces as backup, uh, but then the queen has a palace, your harem has a palace, and then your harem's palace has a palace. That's a little bit of overkill. This is how Xerxes was. He moved her into the best place. Now, like I said, some people debate what it means to please the king. Uh, about 80% of the commentaries that I could find uh, agreed that it was a sexual pleasure, that, he ha- that she had to have sex with the king in order to please him. 20% disagreed with that and say it was just based on her physical appearance alone. But 80% of the commentaries I could find said it was a sexual thing, which means that she broke the laws in Scripture about purity. It means that she broke the laws of Scripture that says that you're to keep yourself pure until you are married. Verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Absolutely, without a doubt, Esther is a Jew in hiding. She's not carrying her Jewish name. She's not observing dietary laws. She's not observing uh, the regular uh, moral laws of Scripture. She's doing everything that she possibly can to hide the fact that she is Jewish by birth to the point where she is using her Persian name, which is the derivative of a goddess. Here's what's interesting. In every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Mordecai in his fear of being found out, still doesn't give up his responsibilities as her guardian. Now, Mordecai is her uncle, but he adopted her into his household. That means, I believe, that Mordecai has a fatherly instinct for Esther. Now, if you are a father, uh, let me ask you this really straightforward yet abrasive question, how would you feel as a father or as a parent, if you're a a mother and you have a kid, how would you feel if your child was forced into prostitution? Under fear of death of yourself and death of your child. Because if they had said, no, Esther's not going into the king's court, not only would Esther have been killed, but Mordecai would have been killed too. So Mordecai is faced with a Uh, a decision. Is he going to try and hide Esther, shield Esther, let her not be in this situation and and get her killed, or is he going to allow the king to do what the king wants to do? Uh, I'm not a father. I am an uncle. I have a beautiful niece. Um, Let me just put it this way. I would lose my salvation and go to jail for a very long time if anything like this happened to my niece. And that's just my niece. I don't want to know what would happen if you had a daughter. I, I, would, I, would, be, I would be nuts. I'm not going to lie about that. I would probably, probably be ballistic. Mordecai is pacing up and down, up and down, every day, trying to peer in the windows. Where is, where is Esther? Is she okay? Is she, has she made it? Did she accidentally get herself executed by walking in front of the throne? Because that can happen. If you, if you walk in front of the front throne and you don't bow, you get executed. If the throne is empty and you walk in front of the throne, you get executed. Uh, if you go into the king's court without being summoned, you get executed. Are you getting a theme here? Like, sneeze the wrong way. You know what happens to you? You get executed. Mordecai's pacing up and down, up and down. 
she's going to very quickly transition to being a bride. And what I have tried to tease out from this particular section of scripture is I believe that Jesus is a greater bride. Now, I know that seems like a really weird statement. Let me unpack it just a little bit. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as uh, the bridegroom. So in this particular passage, maybe the bridegroom would be a better sentence for it. Uh, And the church of Jesus Christ is called the bride from heaven. Jesus prepares a greater bride. He is the, the bridegroom and he's preparing his bride, us, for the wedding day in heaven, according to the book of Revelation. Um, that there are some interesting things, some interesting uh, cultural and historical things uh, to, to sort of tease out from this concept. Uh, when Jesus was asked where he was going, he says, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. You, you familiar with that? From there, we got this ridiculous notion that when we all get to heaven, we're all going to get our individual mansions. You get a mansion and you get a mansion. I'm like, Oprah, giving away mansions to everyone. Uh, That's not actually a scriptural thing. It's taken from that particular passage that Jesus said, in my father's house there are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. Now, in Jewish uh, religious uh, wedding culture, what would happen is, is if a person was marrying into a family, say, for instance, I was marrying my wife, Nikki, I would actually go to my father-in-law's house. His name is Tom, very nice guy. He wears a cowboy hat. I would go to Tom, and I would say to Tom, I'm going to be marrying your daughter, and I would start building an, an addition, an extra room off of his house. Now, there is no safer place for a bride than having the future son-in-law live with the future father-in-law. Because you know nothing is going to happen. There's no sneaking in through windows, uh, because you are literally living in your, in your father's house. So when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, uh, it doesn't mean that we're getting our individual mansions. What it means is that uh, in heaven, there is the place where God dwells and we are going to dwell with him. That's what it means. In the book of Esther, Esther is separated, isolated, and shoved off to the side to live in a harem. That's where Esther has to live. You and I, as the church and bride of Christ, we're not shoved off to the corner. We're not isolated. We're not tucked away for safely. Christ has us out literally in the middle of all things so that we can be a shining light to attract people to Christ. Jesus is a greater bride. He's going to be greater in every way than the situation that Esther is in right now. He's, we're not gonna, we, we don't have to and we shouldn't hide our identity as Christians in this world. We should be free to tell people, hey, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I worship Jesus. I love Jesus. This is what we're doing. And be confident enough in your own faith that someone comes to you and says, hey, why? You can say, great question. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you about Jesus. Esther is afraid. Mordecai is afraid. In Christ, there is no fear. The fear is gone. The Bible says that he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. He's given us the ability to answer questions. That's what the sound mind, that God has not given you a spirit of fear or timidity, but of love, which means we answer things with grace. When someone comes to us and has questions, we don't act like they're stupid for not knowing it. We don't bite off their heads because they asked us a question, but we answer with grace and with love. 
we say, hey, you've got a question, great question, let me try and answer it from my perspective. With, uh, so he's not giving us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a, a spirit of love and a sound mind, that he gives us the information in our heads, that the Holy Spirit will enlighten us to be able to answer questions. And when we don't know the answers, that we're able to go to Scripture and get the answers, because the Scripture is our foundation for everything. He's not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of love, of power, and a sound mind, that we have the authority through Jesus Christ to be able to answer questions. It's very important. Xerxes had authority over everyone except the Greeks. And that wasn't for lack of trying. He had authority to do what he wanted. We have authority given to us by God himself. We have a responsibility as Christians to answer questions because he's given us love, power, and a sound mind. Are you with me? All right. I'm going to close our time together just with uh, a prayer in a second. Uh, right before Lenore comes up to give her uh, CSM benediction. I got a hand raised. Yes, ma'am? I have a question. Yes. Um, going back to when you were saying how Mordecai was uh, hiding the fact, mm-hmm. is that possibly related to why the book of Esther doesn't have God? Um, in all honesty, I can't answer that. The book of Esther is, is the least researched book in the Bible. Um, the first commentary on Esther wasn't written until 700 years BC, uh, AD, rather. 700 years after Christ was the time the first commentary was written on the book of Esther. Uh, for a lot of times, it has its place within Jewish culture, but their focus on Esther has always been about the Feast of Purim, not about anything else. So... Uh, with Mordecai, we're not actually sure if he is the author. A lot of Jewish tradition says that he is, but there's no definitive proof. So it could be, but it also couldn't be. And it's one of those questions that uh, I wouldn't be able to give you a straight answer one way or the other, but I can give you sort of both points of view. Does that make sense? Right? Jesus is a greater bride. He's got a place for us. He's preparing a place for us. This isn't the end. There's more. There's something better and greater coming. And I think that as Christians, you know, we can get excited that this isn't it, that there's more. There's something greater coming. And too many times I see Christians, oh gosh, they're trying to be uh, reverent, but they just come across as sour. Have you met these guys? Maybe you got, you've, you've never met a sour Christian. I've met a bunch. Uh, you know, the Christians that look like they've been sucking lemons their entire lives. There's joy in Christianity. There's joy in our current, present suffering. And there's joy for the promise of no suffering to come. It says that in Scripture. Paul says that he counts it pure joy when he encounters suffering of all kinds because he believes that that suffering is drawing him closer to God. And so as we end our time together today, I just want to encourage you to be happy Christians, not to be hiding Christians, to encourage you to step out in faith, not hide your faith like Mordecai and Esther did in this particular section. And when you do... I believe that when you no longer hide your faith, 
you receive the joy of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.